We're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Will Weber is on the board. Liz Russell booking the guests. In the newsroom, Dana Weeks and Day Woodard. Are people really that divided? Or is that just what the extremists want you to believe? We have made it this far, and the world is still spinning. Here's Scott Thompson. There you go. Yeah. Some of the times the youngins have the best points, hmm? Good afternoon, it is 900 CHML, I'm Scott Thompson, it is Hamilton Today, all the gang is here, feel free to jump into the conversation, love to hear from you, you know what to do, you can send us a note, Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com. All right, uh, another jam-packed show coming up, lots going on, we're all obviously monitoring Hurricane Ian, uh, Category 4, a hurricane that is uh, hitting Florida's coast and uh, obviously causing issues there, as well as monitoring what has been going on and how they're cleaning up and getting over fuel. Uh, still, the number one priority is uh, getting things cleared uh, so they can get through and then get power back on. Still over 100,000 people in Nova Scotia without power. Coming up a little later on uh, this hour, uh, in about 20 minutes, we're going to be talking to uh, Philip Brown, the mayor of Charlottetown, PEI, and get his perspective of uh, where we are in all of this, where they are in all of this, and what else they need. Uh, other big stories going on, uh, the Russian pipeline explosion uh it looks as if it's they did it to themselves which is very odd because it was shut off anyway so i don't get it but um i believe it's sweden detected uh explosions that were above ground they say it wasn't seismic uh, like uh earthquakes or anything like that uh or volcanic eruption or any of that sort of natural uh disaster they believe it was blown up so uh, we'll talk about that in the different angles uh, coming up. Also, the latest polls coming up show the liberals uh, not doing well and they're bleeding supporters and uh, going to all corners. We'll talk about that coming up a little later on as well. All right. Uh, obviously, the big story as we continue to watch the East Coast clean up from uh, Fiona and try to get the power back on. Coming back down to the other end, Hurricane Ian is making landfall at uh, at Florida as a Category 4 storm there. Uh, here's a clip from Reggie Giacchini, and they're down there, but they got to be pretty fluid, pretty mobile, because um, it's changing direction, and they got to get out of the way or at least out of harm's way as much as they can. Here's Reggie Giacchini uh, down in Florida. We were in Tampa until the storm system decided that it was going to go in a different direction, so we came south. Storm surge is going to be the major factor when it comes to this hurricane. In the Tampa area, that could be a storm surge of somewhere between 6 and 10 feet. Where we are in Sarasota, that storm surge could push 10 to 15 feet down through Naples, Venice, uh, and Fort Myers. Storm surge could reach 18 feet, and that becomes catastrophic because that is water that is now leaving the ocean. It is leaving the coastline, and it is moving kilometers inland, which again was why they put these evacuation zones in place here in Sarasota the police uh, uh, the police chief not all that long ago made a comment that local police are no longer on patrol throughout the city all police have been pulled off of the streets meaning that for those people that did stay behind it will be impossible for help to get to them and as this water comes in Hundreds of millimeters of rain could fall, several feet of storm surge on top of winds that could go higher than 110, 120 kilometers an hour, able to snap the the palm trees and the tall trees that are kind of dotting the landscape here. 
that could become a deadly situation for those that thought that they'd be able to ride this storm out. Uh, global correspondent Reggie Giacchini down in Florida talking about the situation there. I don't know if you've seen any shots of Tampa Bay, but it, it's it, it looks almost drained. Like it's the wind came in and literally blew the water out of the bay inland. And then I guess it slowly drains back in. But to see Tampa Bay with very, very extremely low water levels because the wind has blown the water inland, it's just absolutely bizarre and shows you uh, the devastation and and just the the velocity of this storm. Uh, Here's another report from uh, Reggie talking about those trying to get out of FLA. Uh, those wind speeds that are uh, continuing to increase, those alerts are going off at a far more furious pace. Uh, and as you mentioned, because uh, the city officials had told people in zones A and B, those are right up against the water, kind of where we are right now, that it is too late. Evacuation time is over, and those people need to uh, understand, according to city officials, that they're pushing these alerts out so that they have an understanding as to what is in store. And we are watching these winds uh, pick up at a rapid pace. The inside structure of that hurricane, as it approaches Cat 5, winds are in and around 250 kilometers an hour. The winds where we are right now are sustained in and around 75, 80, approaching 90 kilometers an hour. This is only going to get worse, meaning for those that did stay behind, it could simply be too late for them. All right, so that's Reggie Giacchini, uh, our U.S. correspondent down in uh, Florida, obviously riding out the storm there. We're going to talk to Reggie live coming up in the 5 o'clock hour to get the latest uh, wherever he is, because obviously he is uh, changing locations depending upon which the dire- uh, which direction the storm is heading in. Uh, but obviously those in the southern U.S., FLA particularly, bracing uh, for the worst. As, um, as you heard Reggie said, Category 4, and, um, you know, it, it could go up beyond that. Hopefully, as things hit land, uh, they have a tendency to settle down. Uh, but at this point, it is uh, certainly gaining steam as uh, it rips through Florida. I've been completely enmeshed in this community and all of the issues and the challenges that we are dealing with. And I'm proud to be able to listen to the folks, expand uh, the the stakeholder base that uh, I have been working for. I was the voice of business in Hamilton, um, and now I'm running to be the voice of Hamilton. That is Keenan Loomis, former chamber head, chamber of commerce for the Hammer, and now mayoral candidate, and not a Hamiltonian originally, but newbie, I guess, considered, uh, explaining why um, his, I guess, uh, compared to the other candidates who are much more experienced in Hamilton politics, whether it's Andrea Horbath or Bob Bertina, uh, why he is worth taking a look at. Joining us in studio, Dave Woodard, news anchor for 900 CHML. He was at the debate last night, which was on cable 14. Dave, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. Of course. Thanks, Scott. So, uh, first of all, uh, who was there? How did you do this with Bertina being out with COVID and such? So how was, uh, how was this all presented? Yeah, so it was interesting. It was done in the Westdale Theater. And so the only two people that were in the house in terms of candidates uh, were Andrea Horvath and Keenan Loomis. Everybody else, including Bob Bertina and the other candidates, they all submitted uh, two-minute uh, videos uh, that uh, were aired on Cable 14 talking about their platform. So uh, at some point during the debate, uh, Cable 14 aired these um, uh, these two-minute videos. Uh, and, and so just to give 
kind of give them a, a platform. I, mm-hmm. I know that uh, Bob Bertino was hoping at one point that he could do it virtually because obviously uh, he p- tested positive uh, for COVID uh, the night before. Uh, but uh, when I was speaking to the folks at Cable 14, they just, they said if it was being done at their studio, they'd be able to do it. But because mm-hmm. it was done at Westdale Theatre, they just didn't have uh, the right equipment to do so. So uh, having Loomis and Horvath together as the only ones participating, and we'll talk about the videos in just a sec, is, is there a bit of a, an advantage for them because of that, especially for someone like a Keenan Loomis getting in more time? What was your takeaway from this? Yeah, it was interesting that, uh, you know, Keenan Loomis did get a lot of his talking points across, especially in what they're, they call the open forum part of the debate. So there was really three parts of the debate. There was the introductions, there was the media questions, and then there was the open forum where, where the candidates ask each other's uh, each other questions. Uh, and it was really interesting because Keenan Loomis, right off the bat in that open forum, kind of went on the attack on Andrea Horvath. Earlier in the day, there was another debate that it was a lot of media said it was way too friendly. There wasn't enough kind of debate, as it were. Um, it was also at 8 in the morning, so take that for what it mm. was. Uh, but this one at Cable 14, uh, Keenan Loomis really kind of went after uh, Andrea Horvath right away, talking about her leaving provincial politics and wondering if, you know, she was doing the right thing for uh, for the constituents. So it was, it was very interesting in that way uh, that we saw a side of Keenan that we haven't seen before in the sense that he really was trying to take uh, a, a chip out of uh, Miss Horvath. Uh, okay, so we've uh, talked about Keenan uh, Loomis. What about Andrea Horvath, her performance? What stood out for uh, for you? There was a couple of things. She really tried to talk about the experience or lack thereof that Keenan has in politics in general. Of course, Keenan Loomis being the chamber president for 10 years, uh, he was, he, he's been uh, a part of the chamber for 13. He moved to Hamilton in 2009. And that was another one that was kind of uh, an interesting Uh, a bit of conversation between the two uh, that has come up a little bit online talking about how, you know, Andrea Horvath was bringing up the fact that Keenan is not a lifetime Hamiltonian. Mm. Um, Do you think that that's something that will be held against him? Because again, in Bertina and Horvath, you've got lifelong Hamiltonians here. Right. And I don't think so. I think really it's one of those things that I think that people who have been in Hamilton, that vote in Hamilton, know who Keenan Loomis is. I don't know if it's going to necessarily bring people to his camp, uh, but it's certainly not going to hurt him, the fact that he's you know not a lifelong Hamiltonian. I think a lot of people, they have kind of in their mind who they're going to vote for. I think now they're kind of waiting to see um, who they don't want to vote for. If that makes so did sense. they did they spend? Yeah, I, really. And that's like any election when you think sure, about it. Sure. A lot of uh, chatter from what I'm getting about what the other person is or is not. Was mm-hmm. there much emphasis on what the city needs moving forward? During the media questions, I thought there was. I mean, there was a lot of, you know, prepared answers. And I think a lot of the, the candidates uh, did very well in terms of prep. We asked them uh, questions about urban boundaries. You know, what are their, you know, how are they going to uh, uh, or if they're going to step back against the province, if the province decides that it wants to expand that urban boundary. Uh, talking about policing, right? I mean, Bob Bertina says that he wants to bring in more police officers. Um, you know, I asked them if, you know, would they look at the police services budget? Very prepared answers. Very, um, if you will, not 
non-answers uh, to a lot of questions. It was it was one of those things that it, any question that was kind of put to the candidates, they had answers for that you can already see on their platform. So not a lot of new information, Scott, last night, but it, it was interesting to see. Uh, does anything stand out to you as what's going to be the hottest or a hot issue in this election? What seems to be the number one issue? I think it really is going to be uh, not even necessarily a city issue. I think it's going to be about trust. I, I think mm. Keenan Loomis has really kind of put that on there and saying that he's the one that should be trusted with the city because he doesn't uh, have a, a, a negative um, outlook or a negative experience with either Prime Minister Trudeau or Premier Ford, uh, where, you know, you talk about uh, Andrea Horvath says, well, I've have, I have experience uh, not only with city politics and getting stuff done, but also provincially. And of course, uh, Bob Bertina, he says that, you know, he's got experience being the mayor of the city, he says we need to get back on track. So I think a lot of it is, is going to be about who do you trust, uh, as, as it were, for this election. Mm, all right. Thanks so much. Dave Woodard with his news anchor, 900 CHML, coming up at the bottom of the hour with more on this. Thanks so much, Dave. Much appreciated. Uh, Dave at the uh, Cable 14 debate at Westdale last night in his takeaway. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. All right. As uh, Hurricane Ian hits Florida, uh, we're still trying to deal with what has happened uh, with Fiona and the devastation left along the East Coast and uh, maritime uh, provinces uh, throughout Canada as they desperately try to clear things and get the power back on. Let's bring in Mayor of Charlottetown, PEI, Philip Brown, and he is with us now. Mayor, thank you for the time. Uh, I hope you're doing well from all of us in Hamilton our thoughts and prayers are with you how are you doing today Scott doing great now because we just got our power turned down turned on for our home and I know my wife is excited just as I am because now we can uh, do a laundry we can take showers uh, we can feel like a, we're in a normal house so let's talk about uh, PEI and what it was like for residents of PEI on the island when Fiona came through. So at 1 o'clock in the morning, I was heading to bed and I said, I think I'll go out to the back veranda. Went out to the back veranda and it was ferocious. Uh, I know in 2003, when Hurry came on, came through Prince Edward Island, actually through uh, Queens County, Central County here in, on Prince Edward Island, it was a big hurricane. This was much bigger and a lot more force. And the destruction uh, the day after shows the result of this uh, ferocious uh, hurricane Fiona. Trees knocked down. We have about 11,000 11, municipal trees. And we're still trying to calculate how many trees did come down. But for maritime electric private utility, electrical utility, they estimate 475 poles went down. Now, that's significant for a small island like Prince Edward Island. But it was a, as I said, it was a big hurricane and two or three times bigger than Hurricane One. So is, has the power been now restored back to most of the island, Mayor? It's, it's in the city of Charlottetown. It's, it's gradually getting back on the grid. But, Scott, it's going to take a long time uh, to the east and west of Charlottetown because mm. um, the devastation outside has been quite severe, like the city of Charlottetown. Uh, our whole landscape, the, the, the streetscape is going to change because these beautiful historical trees have been have been affected have were blown down by this uh, ferocious hurricane and you know it's it's 
to me, it we 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 have to get to, we have to adapt and pivot towards more of this happening because climate change is something we talk about when we have a natural disaster like Hurricane Hurricane One and now Hurricane Ian coming up the East Coast. So we have to take those small steps in reducing our carbon footprint, but I think we're in the right direction. I know the city of Charlottetown has been doing great, making great strides in trying to be more electrified in our public transit system, um, using more electric EVs, e-bikes, um, providing more monies for uh, residents to, uh, to, um, uh, uh, to, to add solar panels, geothermal heating to their homes. So there's lots of great things going on, but we have to keep moving in the green direction. And, you know, anybody who's uh, toured your beautiful province and such uh, saw, the, you know, you're talking about the trees coming down and all these natural wonders and such, the teacup. Talk about that. Well, can I just mention one more? Uh, the most disastrous for us was the, uh, the North Shore. That's where mm. the storm surge hit. Uh, it, it, it was originally targeted for the south shore of Prince Edward Island, but that, that That was in line with Charlottetown and Somerset. It's it did it did make a, a change in direction, and the beautiful beaches of Prince Edward Island, Brackley, Dalvey, uh, Stanhope, the the sand dunes gone. All that remains are the stairways going from the top parking lot down onto the main beach, and the teacup. Another uh, a tea, the, the, the teacup was was greatly affected by this storm, but a lot of parts of the island were, were mm. devastated and uh, the recovery is on a lot of collaboration is, is taking place between with with maritime electric or telecommunication telecommunication providers bell alliant east link uh, telus and you know i can mention also scott that we have uh, team rubicon they're a um, group of uh, uh, veterans and uh, military veterans that are coming down to the island to help out with repairs to homes and to buildings in and around Charlottetown and rural PEI. Samaritan Purse is down here. Uh, they also assist in help rebuilding or fixing up damages from natural disasters like hurricanes. And the Salvation Army, Salvation Army from Moncton are over here. And at five o'clock, they'll be serving hot meals to three or four, about 300 people. So the, the outreach, the generosity from our Atlantic partners and just people across the country has been so heartwarming. So uh, Mayor of Charlottetown PEI, Philip Brown, is with us. What are your biggest challenges at this stage? Getting getting electricity back to full uh, full uh, full grid all grid grids up and operating and the cleanup with all the with all the trees that have fallen under the streets broken uh, that tore down power lines telecommunication lines we're trying to get this city cleaned up as quick as possible and I a big shout out to our public employees. About 200 frontline workers have been working day and night to get the cleanup uh, done so that we can get back to some sense of normalcy. And as you know, Scott, we're still in a COVID-19 environment. So mm. it's one disaster after another. But the the the, the goodwill and, and the acts of kindness by Charlottonians and Atlantic Canadians in general has been so heartwarming, so appreciative not only by myself, but City Hall and the residents of Charlottetown. And my next question, Philip, how are the people of PEI doing? How are they coping with this? Well, it's the, as I said, without power, 
You can't have a shower. Without power, you can't cook <laughs> meals. Without power, you can't do a laundry. Without power, you can't sit down and, and watch TV or go online. And that's another big issue because with the power yeah. down, the routers for the internet are down, cell phone service has been disrupted. So the, the quicker, and I we, I we are working, as I said, we're collaboratively with our, our energy and telecommunication providers to get everything up and running. And soon as we get past that hurdle, Scott, I think there will be a big sigh of relief. Are you getting enough help? Are you getting the help you need? Do you need anything more? Well, I'll tell you what we do need. And I phoned the Prime Minister on Sunday. I phoned Prime Minister Trudeau to say, Mr. Trudeau, this is no state of emergency has been has been called, but I can tell you we will need financial assistance from the federal mm. government, from the provincial government. We need money to pay these costs because We've contracted out private contractors to do the cleanup. Uh, Maritime Electric has contracted a service, electrical service providers from other provinces. And the cost is, I know it will be quite high for a small city like Charlottetown, but we have to expend that money to get things cleaned up. And the assistance that the federal government can provide financially will be a huge help, Scott. And Canadians can donate to the Red Cross, of course, uh, in care of this situation. And uh, Canadian governments will, of course, match that, which is great. So uh, any prediction, Mayor, as to when the whole island will be fired up again and there will be electricity? Or are those predictions you just can't make at this point? With Maritime Electric, they're going on increments of one day, two days, three days. For the city of Charlottetown, we're going on a day-by-day case. And I, I, I don't want to push anyone into the into a corner, the, the proverbial for, for proverbial corner. But I'm, I'm I'm just saying day by day, that's how we're assessing it. And it's the same as Scott for the cruise ship industry. Um, cruise ships mm. are not have been suspended until Friday, a, a, and then it'll be assessed day by day because. When you get visitors coming off these cruise ships and they can't get around because of all the debris on the roads, highways, um, it's going to be a big cost to the tourism industry. Wow. Philip Brown with us, Mayor of Charlottetown, PEI, coping with the aftermath of Fiona. Uh, Mayor, good luck to you. Our hearts and thoughts are with you. And uh, please call on us if you need us. And uh, chin up, keep going. We're very proud of you all. Scott, thank you very much and be safe. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. Caledonia Fair kicks off tomorrow about 4 o'clock. It is their 150th edition. Let's bring in Jody Eason, Chair of the Marketing Committee, Second Vice President of the Caledonia Agricultural Society, and here now. Jody, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I'm very well. It's fair time. How can you not be? Exactly. And you must be pretty excited because uh, this is probably the first one closest to normal that you've had in a while. Well, it's going to be interesting. We did run last year and Mm -hmm. uh, it was interesting and an awful lot of work. But yeah, we're uh, looking forward to people being a little more secure about coming out and everyone ready to have a great, wonderful weekend on the banks of the Grand River here. Do you get the feeling there's a bit of pent up energy and there's going to be a, uh, it's going to be a good weekend for you? There's going to be lots of interest, lots of attendance. Well, it seems right now I'm just standing outside and watching all the different competitive entries start to come in, and so people who've been all coming up with all these new creative endeavors mm. over the last several years, 
And the parking lot is pretty jam-packed right now. So it knows, I know that our exhibition hall is going to have all kinds of wonderful things to be seen. So obviously everybody getting through a global pandemic over the last two and a half years. What does a fair, what does the Caledonia Fair, I mean, this is not your first rodeo. You've been around for a while. <laughs> what do you take from something like that? How does it make the next one better? What do you learn? One of the things I learned a very, very long time ago uh, with the fair is nothing's ever set in stone because there's so many things. It's, it's an event where there's a lot of moving parts. The weather is a huge factor, so we always need to be able to pivot and to be able to move around to make things work. You, you're not exhausted through all possibilities until you hit Plan Z. So, and it's wonderful to see the resilience of people, and as they come together, we're a community organization made up of volunteers, and it's wonderful to see people have a chance to get out, see their neighbors, see some new and interesting things, have some fun and uh, spend time together as a community again. People have been missing that. Describe the Caledonian Fair to someone who has never been there before. If you were to think of your classic country fair, uh, like what you always thought, uh, anything you'd ever thought about from the first time you saw Charlotte's Web on, we're kind of a classic country fair. We have a small piece of real estate, but we're on the banks of the Grand River, and we are just jam-packed with entertainment, with farm animals, with all kinds of food, and vendors, World's Finest Show Midway, and plus a lot of great, cool shows like demolition derbies and school rallies. We've got interactive uh, contests that go on, beautiful arts and crafts, and, and all sorts of different things on display in our exhibition hall, and a lot of terrific things this year, special to celebrate our 150th anniversary. And uh, I'm not just saying this because I have a trophy upstairs from, I believe, the 125th edition of the Caledonia Celebrity Demolition Derby. It is a great event yeah. there. It's, we have two nights of demolition derbies on Friday night and Saturday night. Friday night is the smaller cars, and then the pro stocks and the vans come out on, sun, on Saturday night. But, yeah, we've also got, you know, there's a classic car cruise tomorrow night. There's... Uh, We've got a parade on the grounds on Sunday celebrating our anniversary and uh, a new thing on Sunday afternoon, the Heritage Games, where we've got four community groups coming in and doing some relays on things like tug-of-war and cross-cut sawing and all kinds of uh, throwback kind of activities. So, so uh, go ahead. Yeah. No, I was just going to say it's, there's a bit of something for everyone here. we got free kids' play area. Uh, a petting farm, all kinds of stuff. And encouraging people to get their tickets online. Yes, it's up to you how you want to do ticketing. We are available online, and we also will take cash debit or credit at the door. So we're trying to make it as easy as possible for people to come here and enjoy a day with us. And it certainly looks like you're in, a pretty, in for a pretty good weekend uh, weather-wise. It, it looks pretty good. Well, you know, that's the one part of programming we yeah. can't do anything about. But if we get a good weekend, we will be delighted. Um, there's, uh, If you get a little chilly, we got people selling sweaters and blankets. So there's nothing to worry about on that scale. But as long as we're dry, then life is good. Tell everybody where you are. We are on Caithness Street in Caledonia, which is uh, just to the uh, the east of the main intersection in town. 
And so Highway 54 and Highway 6 is where Caledonia's heart is, uh, old Highway 6. Upper James, well, it kind of runs through into here. So, yeah, we're right on the banks of the Grand River. Prettiest little fairgrounds you'll see anywhere. All right, and it all kicks off tomorrow afternoon, the Caledonia Fair, 150th edition of. Jody Easton's been with us, chair of the marketing committee and vice president of the Caledonia Agricultural Society. Jody, thanks so much for the time. Good luck with this year's edition. Well, thank you for your interest, and I hope to see you at the Caledonia Fair. All right, we certainly know that uh, Russia is... uh, uh, conducting some sort of referendum to try to annex more of Ukraine. Many are talking about that uh, being phony and such. But in the midst of all of this, all of a sudden the Nord Stream pipeline, which has been uh, obviously a very contentious issue because it supplies energy from Russia to the rest of Europe, to Germany and such, it's got it's been damaged. Sweden has heard explosions, uh, detected explosions, and now obviously uh, holes in the pipeline. Let's bring in Dan McTagg, president of Canadians for Affordable Energy, former Liberal MP, and with us now, Dan. This is absolutely bizarre. What is your take on on the this pipeline sabotage? They're saying. Well, the timing isn't exactly uh, uh, coincidence. Um, I guess the uh, Ian Fleming, uh, fellow famous for writing. Uh, this uh, serial spy novel, 007, uh, James Bond series, uh, had an interesting quote many years ago. Once an accident, once something like this uh, happens, uh, the first occasion is an accident, second is a coincidence, third, it's mayhem, and it's uh, it's likely a plot. So there hasn't been just one. There's been reports of three mm-hmm. separate examples of sabotage, or whatever you want to call it. Uh, whoever is doing this um, you know, has obviously... An interest in ensuring that uh, you know the the grand effect isn't so much the supplier, but in fact the receiver, and that would be Europe. Uh, this uh, is going to be very hard to fix. It's underwater, and uh, however it happened, uh, one would have to assume that it's sabotage. Uh, this is uh, likely to lead to uh, a more serious outcome uh, that uh, even Europeans uh, could not have possibly imagined. But it does really elevate the point. Uh, you know, if you think you can do without fossil fuels like natural gas and oil, um, we're going to see what that looks like for Europeans who've been at the lead edge of pushing that narrative for the past 10, 15, 20 years. Uh, many are saying that this is sabotage at the hands of Russia, but why would Russia, uh, why would Russia sabotage a pipeline which it controls and can turn the taps on whenever it wants? You know, you want to create pain, you turn the tap off. Hey, you want it open? Give me something. I can open it. You blow it up. It's not much good to anybody. No, but maybe they have other customers. I don't know. Uh, India, uh, China, uh, mm. South Korea. A lot of other people want their natural gas. And since countries like Canada have decided they don't want to be in the business of uh, exporting natural gas, LNG or otherwise, then uh, Russia's uh, just playing the game. And uh, it's unfortunately, I don't think Putin's smart enough to have figured all this out, but he is certainly playing Russia and their sanctions, uh, sorry, playing Europe and their sanctions, not just because of what he wants to get in, in, in Ukraine. It is a double win for him. He's proving once and for all that the uh, fantasies of green energy are just that. And uh, once you start to strip away, uh, you know, natural gas and oil, uh, you don't really have much of an economy. This is going to cause stagflation, and it's going to cause a massive exodus of economic uh, manufacturing industry from Europe. It's going to balkanize Europe and perhaps reduce it to a level that uh, many people have not thought possible years ago, where you now have 
internecine fighting between various nations. You know, uh, <laughs> France saying no to, and Brussels saying no to other uh, countries within the European Union. No, you can't have our electricity, or no, you can't have what little natural gas we have. Um, it's becoming very selfish, and it's going to potentially cause the breakup of the EU. All of these things are in play now, like it or not. Uh, this is yet another example of you know how protracted and how deeply disturbing the situation is becoming, and that uh, countries like Canada really need to smarten up when it comes to their uh, politicians on the left, that is the Liberals and the NDP, playing this game of we can do without the very things that uh, protect and provide internet global security for the for the world, that is energy security. Dan, do you think we'll ever find out what happened to this pipeline? Who did this? Of course we will, but it, <laughs> it won't happen, uh, you know, it, in, in time, likely yeah. to, uh, to, to rescue Europe. Uh, Europe is in big trouble. These temps drop. Uh, we can get away from our, uh, our overloaded excitement that uh, what's happening with hurricanes, Fiona and, and, uh, and uh, Ian are the result of uh, climate change, which they are not, and most, uh, most uh, folks involved with the science uh, of, uh, of of our atmosphere are you know very strong in their denial and their their admission that this is not about you know uh, a couple of extra molecules of, mo- of carbon. But uh, I think we're going to find out a lot more about this uh, in the next couple of months. Uh, but I think the public's attention will be on a starving Europe, a freezing Europe, a Europe that made a big bad decision. Uh, and it's one that Canada's prepared to do. We still have our Prime Minister going out saying, you need to be taxed, not once, but tripling of the tax uh, in order to stop hurricanes. You have that from the, uh, the uh, what I referred to yesterday, the Minister of Former Felonies, uh, Stephen Gibo, who's your Minister of uh, Environment and all sorts of other uh, climate nonsense, um, is coming out and saying, you know, uh, what we're seeing here uh, play out with uh, this, these these hurricanes is the direct result of not paying a carbon tax. So this is it, this is madness, <laughs> yeah. insanity, yeah. Uh, and it's going to hurt us here in Canada. We're not going to walk away from this easily. And uh, uh, if Europe's in trouble economically, you can bet the same thing's going to happen here in Canada. Don't even get me started on what uh, uh, the chief financial officer of the country basically said yesterday before our Senate committee, saying, you know, all that debt you guys have accumulated, thinking nothing of it, thinking it's cool and trendy and needed to be, where the cost of servicing that is going to double in the next four years. Now, how are you going to build your hospitals, maintain your, your standard of living, keep your roads plowed, much less maintain you know uh, affordability in this country when we've got interest rates out of control, stagflation. And that uh, thing I remembered very well, Scott, back in 1981 when I first had my break on the Hill working for the housing minister when people were losing their homes. Yeah. Wages chasing prices, prices changing wages, wages. That inflationary spiral is about to get real bad in Canada. Obviously, if this pipeline, is it shut off? What are we seeing coming out churning in the sea? What's coming out of this if it's shut off? Well, it's basically just the vapor and, and liquid. It's a liquidified yeah. uh, form of, of natural gas. It's a combination right. of both. Obviously, it's not burning or anything like that, so that's, it'll eventually just make its way into the air. Um, you know, uh, Someone hopefully will have turned it off with the valves at one end or another, but that's a long stretch. You don't have valves sitting, you know, uh, right. turn off yeah. valves everywhere in the middle of the Baltic. It's, yeah, it's stuff in the pipe, yeah. All right, Dan McTagg with us, President of Canadians for Affordable Energy, former Liberal MP, talking about the Nord Stream Pipeline, which now has holes in it, and nobody knows how or why. Dan, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Good to be here. Thanks, Scott. Have a good day. 
You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Anybody that has traveled over the last uh, six months or so um, knows uh, how difficult it has been, whether you're crossing borders, going in airports, trying to get a passport. It's just Canada has literally become the laughing stock of all of this, and uh, it's not happening all over the world. It was happening mostly here or in airports all over the world where you were trying to get out and come to Canada. And the good news is, is that of uh, as of September 30th, all of the COVID-19 vaccine mandates will be dropped uh, at land borders coming into the country, which means you don't have to show vaccine proof you don't have to uh, the masking rules in in uh, planes and trains and such uh random testing all of that stuff is now gone as of uh september 30th and many are saying uh what took you so long uh, but we remember as when things really opened up, which was, you know, in the last six or eight months when travel just went through the roof, people were traveling anywhere. We were lucky enough to travel uh, through the summer and saw this at airports, uh, specifically at Pearson and such, as people decided to get out. Well, now is September 30th, and we've heard this from the mayor of Niagara Falls, so much staff and so much or so many uh, customers from the United States come into Niagara Falls in order to help them with their tourism it's, it makes up like 50 percent of their tourism now they're expecting a surge so what does that mean at border crossings will we see the same sort of situation when travel picked up six months ago at, at the airport and, and passport offices will we now have that at land borders as possibly we're going to see the amount of visitors coming from the united states pick up and if we've got staff shortages and levels rise what happens? Let's bring in Mark Weber, National President, Customs and Immigrations Union, and is with us now. Mark, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. I'm well. Thanks for having me. So what are you expecting at the border crossing as come September 30th? Uh, are you expecting um, a, a change in business, a surge? What are you expecting? You know, we're making an educated guess. It's hard to know, but uh, I would think that there will be an increase. Uh, and we've talked to the mayor of uh, Niagara Falls. He was saying that they're hoping to do some sort of ad campaign. Uh, obviously, I don't think anything is going to be in place by then. Do you think the word is going to get out and you will see these increases? I think so. Yeah, I think the word will get out. That the restrictions have been lifted. I think word will get out that that application uh, arrive can is no longer mandatory. All those all those things have to help. Yeah. What were the challenges Across, you know, in crossing the border in the last two and a half years with these restrictions, what it, what's it been like at the border? It's been uh, it's been chaos. I mean, we have people sometimes having waited five, six hours to get across at land borders. You've seen everyone's seen, I think, in the news, the lineups at airports. It's uh, there's really two reasons for it. One, we're we're critically understaffed everywhere across the board. We've seen our frontline staffing levels drop steadily over the last five or six years. Um, they're at the lowest now that they've ever been. And then on top of that, you add the uh, the requirements of ArriveCan, which saw, we would guess, around 30 to 40% of travelers arriving without having completed the app. So mm. the little staff that we had spent all their time helping people complete the app because it was mandatory. And, you know, it's interesting, many uh, didn't see this coming with the airports, uh, that obviously, as they were laying people off or people just moved on, once the surge starts, there isn't the capacity to handle all of the people. So uh, is staffing your major concern that, um, you know, if levels increase, you're not going to have the staff to process everybody? 
Yeah, right now for us, it really is. I mean, our, our training program is very lengthy. Uh, the Our infrastructure to, to hire people and have them start working on the front line is such that uh, we're, we're, we have to look at long-term solutions. Um, it, it's going to take a, a real push to hire over the next few years to get our levels up to what it's needed. So what do you need? What are you asking for? You talked about new hires. I mean, is that is that tangible? Are you are you expecting more? I mean, right now it's going to take a commitment from the government to invest more money into hiring more officers to work at the front line. The maximum we could pump out in a year is around 600. That barely covers attrition. So given that reality to get our numbers up is really impossible unless there, there's some kind of push to, I don't know, open a new training center, provide more money for us to hire more people. This sounds like it's another problem waiting to happen. Are people aware of this? Uh, you know, whether it's the mayors of border cities or, or uh, uh, others in the hospitality and travel industry who are really banking on this opening to, to really help boost their profits again. I believe that anyone who works in an industry connected to the border is aware. Obviously, anyone working at the border is more than aware. We know, I mean, we, we have ports of entry, even before COVID, we're working on unlimited overtime going back years that that cannot last forever, right? At some point, someone's going to have to just admit, look, we, we need thousands of more officers working at the front line. Are, is government listening? Is there, what is the short-term solution? What is this, the short-term prognosis for you? Short-term prognosis is lineups and a lot of overtime, sadly. I'm hoping they're listening. We're doing everything we can to, you know, educate them on the reality of the situation. The reality is we're, we're seeing a lot of effort putting into uh, technologies, kind of short-term solutions using uh, expanded use of the Arrive Can app and new things like e-gates that they're trying out. The reality is that any technology they've put in so far has really slowed things down. Uh, an officer could process a traveler about twice as fast as one of those automated machines. So we, we really, at a fundamental level, we just need more people at the front line. How much time will be saved are you anticipating come September 30th when you don't have to deal with the Arrive Can or checking everybody's vaccination status and such? Uh, how, how much, do, any idea on the average stop, how much this is going to save you? Time, hard, hard to say. I mean, I'd be guessing, but it is going to help. I mean, making it optional rather than mandatory is absolutely going to help. But then at the same time, when you remove all the restrictions, while you're taking away the time that we had to... I, want to, I don't want to use the word waste, but we had to use helping people complete the app. That could very well be taken up by an increase in traffic as well, right? So then that was my next question. Uh, the time that you saved, uh, will, will how will that work in helping these extra travelers that are coming across? Uh, will that balance out or are you going to be caught behind the eight ball here? The, the reality, and it's the reality now, and it has been for a long time in terms of staffing, uh, at the CBSA, we're continuously trying to fill 100 holes with 40 pegs, right? Mm. And we're seeing five, six-hour lineups, and, and it's time to just admit that this, this situation to be fixed, it, it, it's quite simple. We just need more people. We're not close to enough. So, uh, obviously, as of September 30th, the mandates for vaccination and such are all dropped. Um, but the Arrive Can app is optional. Why is that? And does this complicate things by having an optional 
So they've added uh, functionalities to the app, which allows you to complete your declaration ahead of time. Um, so this is being tried out at the three Canada's three largest airports in Montreal, Toronto and Vancouver. And they have a system in place where they have these things called e-gates, where you essentially scan your declaration and you go through. I, it, uh, best way to describe it would be a turnstile almost, right? And based on what you declare, you're either free to leave or you're referred in. The fear we have with that is, A, it's a lot slower than being processed by uh, an officer. But B, in terms of security, uh, our security is greatly reduced when we're no longer interacting with travelers. We can't create a situation where it's almost like a grocery store checkout mm. where you're self-serving. And if you declare something, you know, then you're referred. And if you don't declare anything, you're not. Obviously, anyone smuggling is not going to declare that they're smuggling. So really, the advantage to using the Arrive Can app once it becomes optional is, is that supposed to speed up your process through the border? Um, if it is, from what we see of how the e-gates work and our, our knowledge of how those automated kiosks called the pick machines have worked, it doesn't. Uh, an officer is processing you a lot faster than the machine can. Mark Weaver with us, National President, Customs and Immigrations Unit, uh, Union, and the fear is come September 30th when travel increases and Americans can come in without having to show proof of vaccination, will there be enough staff? Mark, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Good luck. Thank you. Anytime. Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer. He'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. A report from Robert Half Limited shows that uh, the salary expectations and priorities for Canadians right now. We've been living through a global pandemic coming out the other end and trying to figure out what life works, uh, what life will uh, looks like, and what will work in a post-pandemic world. It is 4.50. I'm Scott Thompson. Will Weber on the board. Jump into the fun. Send us a note. Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com. Uh, phone lines are always open at 905-645-3221, star 9900 on your cell. Remember way back when people were talking about the Great Reset? Did it happen? The Great Exodus? People changing jobs? Uh, labor shortages? Pendulum swinging back? More emphasis put on employees? Uh, and salaries? Wages going up? Is it true? Uh, let's bring in Sandra Lavoie, Regional Director, Robert Half Limited, and is with us now. Sandra, thank you for your time. I hope you're well. Yes, I am, and thank you for having us. So lots of chatter uh, throughout the last two and a half years about what uh, the workforce will look like, what work will look like coming out the other side. Uh, retention, people changing, labor shortages, is that forcing wages up? For sure it is. Uh, one of the things that we're seeing is over 50% right now of employees and professionals feel they're underpaid. Um, and which is a lot, which is a large amount of our employees. Um, and 37% of the workers will consider changing employers if they don't get at least a 10% increase in salary. So wow. that's a lot. And that is very real. We're seeing it every single day. What industries do you see this in more? Does this affect all industries? Is it right across the board? How will we see this pan out? It's a right across the board. And it's, you know, it could be from administration to IT to accounting and finance, professional services uh, to labor. We're seeing it in all aspects of different types of positions and all the industries are being affected you know think about when you go to a restaurant or you go to a service industry you'll see a sign 
um, please be patient. We are short staffed. Yeah. And that's happening everywhere. And people are making changes in their lives because they're being underpaid and feel that they're not getting proper salaries. What about industries or businesses that aren't doing so well? They have to give perks. It might not always be about the money, but they must be giving them flex time or remote work. Wellness programs are bigger than ever, and employers need to give wellness programs and mental health resources. A lot of employees have been affected by mental health, and we need to be really sensitive to our employees' needs. So if you can't afford the pay increase, you've got to provide perks like uh, more time off, whatever it may be. Uh, Yes. You said flexible work hours, flexible work situations. You know, so they don't let allow them to go pick up their kids after school. They don't don't have to pay after daycare, uh, daycare after school. Um, We call that a windowed work day where they might, you know, do a little bit of work after the kids go down, but they're allowed to help with homework and have the kids home right after school. We heard during the course of this uh, two and a half years all kinds of of catchphrases and words and such. Uh, The Great Reset, the mass exodus, changing of jobs and careers. Did all that happen as much as we expected or is that shoe still to drop? I think it's really happened. And it was interesting. I was at a conference, a virtual conference last week, and the speaker said, we've heard for the last couple of years, war on talent. Well, that war on talent is over, and guess what? The talent won. So employees have won. They're in demand, and they will make change. You know, fifty over 50% of employees feel they're in the driver's seat when it comes to negotiating, pay. It could be perks. It could be benefits. And people are confident that they will make a change if they're not being paid appropriately. How will this change business schools how will this change those that are going through for their mba to become the head of whatever uh where you know obviously cost in 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 profits are king and people perhaps take a back seat is that changing at that level are people studying and realizing maybe we're looking at this from the wrong angle they are because remember something retention will make you money If you have turnover, that history and knowledge leaves, it could take you two, three, four months to replace that candidate and sometimes longer. And and employers know that. They need to be also communicating with their employees. If they can afford to give them a pay increase now, communicate on when they can and what they can offer them in a perk. But it's all about the employee feeling recognized and understanding they're appreciated, but they will get a salary increase. Maybe it's not today or, you know, next two months, but maybe in four or six months. All right. I only got a couple of minutes left, a minute or so left. Uh, I'm going to ask you two questions. What is the message to employers? What is the message to employees? So pick whichever one you want to start. To, To an employer, have strong communication with your employees and we call that a stay interview. What is it going to take and how happy are they and communicate effectively, not just on annual reviews, but either monthly or quarterly. For employees, communicate with your employer. Give, give them an idea of what you're looking for and talk to them 
honestly and openly about what you need for you to stay and grow in your career. All right, Sandra Lavoie with us, Regional Director, Robert Half Limited, how the workforce and the way we do business is changing in a post-pandemic world. Sandra, fascinating stuff. Thanks for your time. Be well. Thank you very much. Take care. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. As the East Coast cleans up after Fiona and tries to get the power back on and the roads cleared, uh, the... <laughs> We're getting hit from the other end. Uh, this time it is Florida on the Gulf Coast and Hurricane Ian making, uh, making land on the Gulf Coast and slowly making its way up Florida and, uh, leaving a path of destruction in its wake, as you can imagine. Let's bring in Reggie Giacchini, Global News correspondent. He is in Sarasota and with us now. Reggie, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. Good afternoon. So you're in Sarasota. How bad is it there right now? Not as bad as it is in uh, in southwestern parts of the state, down through Naples and Fort Myers, but it is still um, it is still a, a devastating storm up this way. We're, we're dealing with flooding. The, the streets are actually flooded right in front of me. There's a number of downed palm trees that are in and around the city. Uh, flooding is going to be a concern. So too is damage from winds, because while we may be about uh, 45 minutes to an hour from where landfall took place, the eye is continuing to move up the state and closer towards. Uh, the Sarasota region. Our winds right now are sustained in and around 110, 120 kilometers an hour. Those are going to continue to uh, strengthen over the next couple of hours. This is a storm system that is that is inching along, and with that slow movement comes the significant damage. Uh, obviously, this made uh, land in and around the Gulf Coast, the southern western Gulf Coast, as you said. I- is it pretty much blanketing all of Florida, or are, are they just getting really bad storms? Where is the path of this? Yeah, absolutely. Look, this is number one. This is the first storm to be hitting uh, the Gulf Coast of Florida uh, in some cases decades. 2004 was Hurricane Charlie in and around the Fort Myers area. So people have not been used to this kind of weather. But this is a massive storm. The eye of Hurricane Ian is the entire size of what Hurricane Charlie was. This storm system realistically is creating um, rain bands and rain threats all the way through the northern parts of the state and up into Georgia. South Carolina has already uh, put a state of emergency in place because this is going to pop out on the Atlantic coast and then eventually make a second landfall through uh, through either northern Georgia's coastline uh, or South Carolina. So this is a massive storm and the risk is real. So while you're dealing with uh, you know chest and and uh, and waist deep water through parts of Fort Myers and Naples, uh, Orlando is going to be hit hard with flooding rains uh, and strong winds up and towards Jacksonville as well. This is a storm system that realistically has put two and a half million Floridians across the state on an evacuation notice. Uh, and as you mentioned, uh, you know this came in through the Gulf Coast. Usually, once these things hit land, they they sort of start to uh, at least decelerate. But then, if it hits the East Coast, it's going to pick up again. Yeah, there's a real risk of that. And look, the simple fact that this this strengthened rapidly into a Category Four, almost a Category Five storm. Look, it was a couple of mile difference uh, in wind speeds between Category Four and Five for this storm. So it is massive. It has a lot of energy with it. And it, well, it is slowing down. It will lose some of its tropical capabilities uh, or abilities uh, uh, over the state. And as it tracks north, the, the Atlantic Ocean is warm. There is a risk that this could re-intensify to a tropical storm, potentially a low-level hurricane, before it makes a secondary landfall and poses problems into the Carolinas and into the, um, the U.S. Mid-Atlantic. So this is going to leave a trail of destruction, as we've already seen 
through western Cuba, as we are now seeing through Florida, and what we could continue to see up the U.S. East Coast. Uh, Very bizarre to see shots from Tampa Bay earlier today in the harbor. I mean, it looks like it's literally empty, and the water has obviously been pushed inland. Yeah, and look, I was talking to uh, our chief meteorologist, Anthony Farnell, about this, uh, because not only in Tampa, but here in Sarasota, the bay, uh, the water started to pull out. And he says that this is a reverse storm surge. What happens mm. when these storm systems hit land, uh, north-facing uh, uh, waterways will start to see some of their water disappear. And then the real risk is when that water comes back. Does it come back in a yeah. slow trickle? Does it come back into something that's going to lead to storm surge, which is the real risk? Sarasota, this city, could see a storm surge of 6 to 12 feet. If, uh, or at least at the highest level. So the risk is when the storm is here, the risk continues when the storm leaves. What about the duration of this? Any idea how long it's going to last, Reggie? Well, so, I mean, according to the maps and the radars that we've been able to track uh, over the last couple of hours, uh, as the eye makes its way towards the Sarasota region, I mean, it'll still be about 40 miles away, but we're looking at in and around midnight by the time the storm is kind of parallel to where we are in Sarasota. So another, what, five and a, uh, another six and a half, uh, seven hours just to get to kind of the west central part of the state, add a couple of hours throughout Orlando, add another maybe 12 hours to get to the northeastern part of the state. This is going to be what meteorologists were concerned about, a storm system that lingers over a state that is, um, you know, dealing with incredibly low land. Florida is not, uh, you know, an above sea level state. Mm-hmm. And when you have a storm system like this that lasts upwards of 24 or 36 hours, the flooding risks are real and they realistically run from coast to coast. How are Floridians handling this? What's the biggest challenge for FLA? Well, I mean, look, a lot of the challenge was trying to get people to leave. Two and a half million people were under that evacuation order. Two and a half million people did not leave their homes. When we were in Tampa, only 400,000 people had put themselves into an emergency shelter, uh, and that becomes problematic. Here in Sarasota and up and down the Gulf Coast, local officials have pulled the police. They have pulled emergency vehicles off of the streets. Uh, And in these evacuation zones, A and B, closest to the water, like where we are right now, uh, if you did not leave, officials have said help is not going to come. And that's not Mm. just tonight. That is not tomorrow. That is through the duration and beyond of this storm. But there are so many people who have said, look, I've ridden out a storm before. It hasn't happened to us in a long time. These storms are stronger now. uh, And there's a lot of people that are simply unprepared. Reggie Giacchini with us for Global News in Sarasota, Florida, talking about Hurricane Ian and its devastation. Reggie, thanks for the time. Be safe. Stay well. Thanks, Scott. We've certainly seen things ramp up with the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Uh, obviously, Putin uh, going and looking for another 300,000 troops to call up, uh, continuing or, or forcing a, a referendum, uh, trying to uh, claim two Ukrainian territories, annexation over those. Uh, and then, mysteriously, Nord Stream pipeline, uh, an explosion uh, three times. And nobody seems to know what happened there. Let's bring in Jason Opel, professor, Department of History and Classical Studies, McGill University, and with us now. Jason, thank you for your time. Hope you're well. Thank you. How are you doing? Good so far. Uh, so obviously Putin moving forward with these referendums, uh, many calling it, oh, everybody calling it pretty much a sham and such. So it looks like he is moving forward to annex these territories. What happens when he does that? What's the, the reaction going to be from the rest of the world? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a quite a uh, combination of cynical and predatory and by any kind of reasonable interpretation of international law dating back 400 years, uh, criminal to do this, which is to say to, uh, annex a territory, uh, through force, 
even if you patch it up with a election uh, undertaken under duress under under the point of a gun. Um, so there's four different regions of the, of the southern and western part of Ukraine that are that are potentially going to be annexed or declared to be annexed very soon. Um, I think the responses will be a factors on Russia. There are a number of different uh, avenues that still remain for the West to explore, and I suspect that there will be continued flow of weapons to Ukraine, which have proven extremely effective, um, both because of the Ukrainian determination and the Russians, frankly, incompetent. So Russia's been at this for almost eight months now. Why are they annexing this now? Why didn't they do this right at the beginning? I think they thought, I think Putin thought that the, his military would quickly overrun uh, Ukraine and that there would be no need to go through the niceties or, you know, this this kind of um, technique. You know, they figured that out later type thing or something turn Ukraine into a kind of satellite of Russia. Um, but there has been a kind of master class in military incompetence by the Russian military. It's really quite shocking. Um, throughout the war, uh, there were large numbers of Russian tanks that uh, ran out of gas or got stuck in mud in the early parts mm. of the conflict. There was a big traffic jam uh, of Russian vehicles. They were fooled by some pretty basic moves by the Ukrainians to divert the Russian forces. They've been outfought at every turn. So the idea is grab what you can get, annex the four territories, and claim victory and dare Ukraine to try to do anything else. So does that mean it's over if he does this successfully? Does he back off once he does this? And and how does uh, Zelensky feel about this? Obviously, he feels if this happens, talks are off. Yeah, that's really the million or billion dollar question. So uh, I mean, my sense is that, you know, Putin wants to, he wants to grasp at a straw to say, I've, I've you know, achieve some victory in the short term to kind of stop the bleeding of the, of the most recent humiliation in the northeastern part of the country where his troops are just routed. Um, will he stop there? I mean, I don't think so. I, I think he, he Putin wants to reduce Ukraine to the status of a satellite. Um, so I don't think he has the means, however, to do much more in the time being. As to the Ukrainians and President Zelensky, he's completely correct that this move would be radically illegitimate in the eyes of the world, um, profoundly criminal, again, in terms of international law, and um, his forces are winning. Well, why should we allow Russia to take over 20% of the country? It's roughly one-fifth of Ukraine uh, when we have prevailed in defending the country. So the question comes when, what will Putin do when those territories are in I guess probably a when Will there be an effort to escalate further or will there be a kind of um, unspoken stalemate at which Putin might pause? Um, I'm guessing with this territory, if he takes it or reclaims it, whatever you want to call it, that more ammo is going to come in. That's going to, um, you know, increase the supply. So does this not just escalate? I, it certainly does in a sense of I mean, it's making obvious and very clear that the survival of Ukraine is at stake. And so, you know, it, it, it's a, when I say it's illegal, I mean, minimally, in 1945, the United Nations Charter says that all member nations renounce aggressive war and all member nations never will annex territory um, through force, right? So, I mean, it's minimally at that level, it's, it's illegal. Um, is it an escalation? Yeah, but I mean, he had already, Putin had already committed the supreme international crime in attacking a country that was in no way reasonably, uh, in no reasonable sense, threatening Russia. Um, 
I, what I'm mostly struck by, though, is just how the military situation has completely befuddled and, and amazed um, most persons outside of Ukraine, which is to say most observers thought the Russians would be able to, uh, you know, overrun large parts of Ukraine and that Ukraine would have to resist in kind of a guerrilla war style. But not only has Ukraine effectively resisted defensively, but it has effectively sent, uh, prevailed an offensive uh, war against the Russian army. It's really remarkable and explains um, Putin's desperation. So, Jason, how do you explain the pipeline explosion? Where did this come from? Does anybody know what happened? So to my knowledge right now, there is no, you know, there's neither a claim of responsibility nor any reasonable uh, uh, identification of responsibility. The Russian government is making menacing sounds about how we will defend our energy energy infrastructure. Um, it's also another way to put, you know, put pressure on the West to say if Russian oil fundamentally stops, the West will freeze this winter, and that there will be serious consequences. And you know, maybe that's part of Russia's endgame is sort of you know make the Western coalition crack on this. But I don't have information about. I don't really know you know who was behind this. Um, but I do think that the Russians will, the Russian government, I should say will use this to say, you know, we are the ones under threat. It's the West that is aggressive to us. Um, This is some kind of ploy by, I have heard one uh, accusation by the Kremlin, this is related to the United States, that the U.S. blew these up, um, which I doubt. Wow, Um, wow. But, you know, so it will be used to to, to amp things up further. Um, I just would say, too, I just think it's really important to keep a certain, you know, deep breath on this. Um, because, you know, that Putin is making extreme threats about, you know, the end of the world in terms of nuclear warfare. But, mm. I mean, he needs to say this because he's trying to, to save face in a rather humiliating situation. Uh, obviously, we're talking about the Nord Stream pipeline, which has had three explosions. Uh, it supplied energy from Russia to, uh, to Europe, to Germany. Um, and many are saying that Russia sabotaged this. Why would Russia blow up the pipeline when it's supplying, you know, I mean, all it has to do is turn the tap on and off. Why would it blow it up? To blame the West, you know, to, to say this is, wow. you know, this is what the U.S. does. They, 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 they claim that they respect international laws, they really do these things. And, you know, so as I say, in all honesty, I highly doubt that. However, I do understand that the, you know, that Putin regime is very good at exploiting legitimate fears and suspicions of the United States because the American government, especially the CIA, pulled all kinds of shenanigans uh, over the course of the Cold War, right? And so there's lots of places in the world that are highly suspicious of the United States. And, you know, the Russians are very good at, at um, exploiting that or reminding people of that. That is a very uh, bizarre case of desperation, if that is in fact. Are you confident, Jason, we will find out what happened here? I, th- I don't think we will. I don't think so, so long as Putin is in charge of Russia, which I don't see any reason to think that that will end anytime soon, despite his current problems. I don't think with him in charge, we'll ever get good answers. Um, like many things, the, 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 the truth will out at some point, but not under the current situation where the government in Russia is, you know, a, a, a fairly low level or a middle level dictatorship and information is simply not going to flow in any kind of credible way. Jason Opel with us, professor, Department of History and Classical Studies, McGill University, talking about Russia and the ever complicated invasion of Ukraine and where it is all going. Jason, thank you so much for the time. Be well. My pleasure. Take care. 
You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Coming up after the 6 o'clock news, Scott Radley show. And, of course, you can read him in your Hamilton Spectator. He's with us now. Scott, hope you're doing well. Oh, I couldn't be better, Scott. How are you? I'm doing pretty good considering gas is going up again at midnight. What the heck, eh? Um, so anyway, I, I, because you're a sports guy and, you know, I'm seeing a lot this week about the, uh, 1972 Summit Series and they were honored. Uh, the team was honored in Ottawa and the Prime Minister giving them a, a, a great tribute. And then I believe today they were in the Hockey Hall of Fame, although I could be wrong there, but more of this and the celebration of the 50 year anniversary of this. Your thoughts on this series and oddly the timing now of the 50 year anniversary. <laughs> And Russia is taking center stage in world politics and the news. Well, uh, you know what it does? That part you just mentioned does help, I think, because there's a lot of people who are not 50 years old, or mm. even if they are 50, might just be 50 and don't really remember or don't understand. And don't. And once you take the geopolitics out of this event, it's just another hockey series. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, if you if you take out what the Soviet Union was, it doesn't really mean the kind of thing that you would sit back and say, yeah, this series is really worth that much of a fuss. I mean, it was all about the politics and all about the Soviet union. That's what it was entirely about. And so I think it's helpful for, you know, not that we want the war in Ukraine to help us bolster our hockey tradition, but it's helpful for people to, Understand, it's kind of the same thing. At that time, the Soviet Union was, Russia, was the bad guy, the enemy, the villain. Height of the Cold War, yeah. It really was. And so, you know, I I mean, I remember writing about this 20 years ago on the 30th anniversary. And Mm. it wasn't near, the Russia was kind of friendly at that point. And so (laughs) you really just, you just didn't get the sense. It's like, who... I mean, it's kind of like a, a, a playoff series between or a hockey series between, I don't know, us and Denmark. Like, who you know, who, who cares? <laughs> so uh, I was going to ask, why is this so significant now then? If it seems to have, you know, waned over the years, but is it is it a bigger deal now because it is the 50th anniversary because the politics are the way they are? Uh, I don't know. Well, I mean, I think it's a bigger deal now because if you, let's be honest, if you look at the gentlemen who are accepting these honors and being there mm-hmm. for these events, um, the likelihood that the majority of the team is going to be around for the 75th anniversary, let's be honest, is not that yeah. high. This is the last great numeric chance to really remember this. And, and I with, think with uh, Paul Henderson, all of them there. I think Paul Henderson said there was like 10 of them missing that had passed on. I don't know if it's that many that have passed on, but there's a bunch that are, you know, getting up there. I mean, it's, it is, look, they were, a lot of them were, hockey was not what it was now then. I mean, you were still in your prime in your thirties then. So a lot of the guys were in their early thirties. Well, you've, they're now into their early eighties. I mean, numerically, statistically, 10 years from now, there's not going to be a ton of them left. Hopefully there are, but so yeah, this is. This is kind and and it's not just the players. I mean, let's be honest, because the players were young men compared to the vast majority of or to the majority of the country. Mm. So this is the last chance, the last big numeric anniversary that many of the people who this really mattered to are going to be here. Yeah, good point. Uh, Talk about Paul Henderson a bit and scoring the goal of a lifetime. Well, I I mean, it's 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 been his meal ticket. I mean, if you're ever going to score a goal, uh, that was the goal to score. 
Yeah. I mean, of all the, and you know, I mean, there've been guys on that team over the years and, you know, people say things that probably they regret. And, you know, there have been some people who have accused Paul Henderson of dining out a little too much on it. I guarantee you any one of those guys scored that goal. Sure. They were doing the exact same thing. There is nobody who would have said, Oh yeah, I scored, but I really think it went in off bill. No, no, you're, you're, <laughs> you're, you're living off this thing. Cause that is the goal. And, and I, I, I don't know whether I expect the same kind of thing when Sidney Crosby moves along because he got the golden goal, of course. Yeah. Uh, or, and you didn't hear, you don't hear Mario Lemieux talking about this with the 87. Well, you know Canada what? Cup, you bring up, but a they have points, so many Scott. other things. They have, yes. they have careers that were far yeah. superior in the NHL to Paul Henderson. So there's a lot more to point to. I think you hit the nail right on the head there because he was not the greatest player in the world. And then he scored this goal. It got him the attention that it did. I think that's part of the story uh, as well. Is he getting enough recognition for this? There was lots of chatter about the hall and all of that. Is he getting the recognition that he did just for scoring that one goal? Yes. Which let's be yes. honest, I, yes. let's be honest, is is pretty famous and has brought a lot of people, um, you know, to understand what's happened with the game and, and, and brought drawn attention to the game. Would, would, would most people know the name Paul Henderson today if not for that goal? Exactly. Hockey fans would. I, I don't question that hockey fans, especially who watched back in that day, would. But would hockey fans really, if you said Paul Henderson, or if non-hockey fans, if you said Paul Henderson and he hadn't scored that goal, or frankly the two winning goals the two games before, he had three in a row, we forget. Mm. Um I don't know that Paul Henderson would be a familiar figure to a lot of people other than this. So, yes, I think he has gotten the recognition that he deserves as for the hall of fame. That's a t- I mean, that's such a tough one because it's, uh, it's almost like halls of fame should have wings for moments, not just your career, but for, we talked about that, about the music hall of fame as right. well, or, or the rock and roll hall of fame. Yeah. It's, it's just, it, I mean, I don't think you can put Paul Henderson in based on the body of his work as a professional hockey player. No, but does that one goal not hold enough significance to get him in? I in 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 some fashion, you would think that that would be the case, and you could say that for a bunch of other people as well who have had a moment or something has happened that's been so. Fam- I mean, Jim Craig, the goalie for the Miracle on Ice team for the Americans against the Russians at Lake Placid, he's not in the Hockey Hall of Fame. Yeah, but we're not that, talking about him. But we're still talking about this well, guy, and we're still talking no, about it fifty years later. But but in the in the states, especially, they do. And on the anniversary, on the fiftieth anniversary of of that event, you will hear Jim Craig or Aruzioni or these guys who were there. And again, it comes to should there be something in the Hall of Fame where you can get in for a moment? for doing something as opposed to the bulk <laughs> of your career. I don't know. I think we're splitting hairs. It's about promoting the sport for. I was going to swear. I mean, you know, to me, to me, this one is a no brainer and I think they're missing an opportunity by not. But again, you know, I'm not the purist that you are, the rest of them. So for someone like me, for someone like me, who will finally change this right after he dies. So he won't ever get into that. That'll that'll be what How sad is that? How sad is that? But, but I mean, if someone like me, who's not really a diehard hockey fan knows so much about this guy, that's a reason for him to be in alone because he's brought so much attention to the game. Anyway, well, and you got to run, but I mean, look, Vlad, Vladislav Trecek, um, he won a bunch of other world championships and Olympics and other things. I mean, he didn't just perform in this series. But yeah. if you take this series away, I'm not sure that the voters put him in the Hockey Hall of Fame, he, despite all the great stuff he did. Or Mikhailov, or I, I can't remember if Harlamov is in or not, or a bunch of them. This series was the thing that you point to all those people and say, that's why they're famous.
Scott Radley, host of the Scott Radley Show, coming up after the 6 o'clock news. You can read them in your Hamilton Spectator. As always, Scott, have a great show. Thanks for your time. Thanks, Scott. Have a great one. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. That's it for us. Thanks for listening. Appreciate it. As always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer, to have the last word. Danny wrote in to say, imagine your kids working all their life and 65% of their wages go to taxes. What a future. 